Revelation chapter 22, verse 1. It said, and he showed me a pure river of the water of life. That is the angel who's been escorting John through the revelation, the unveiling of Jesus Christ. Uh, very clear in verse 8. We'll get to it in a few moments. And this water was clear as crystal, and it proceeded from the throne of God and the Lamb. And in the middle of its street and on either side of the river was the tree of life, which bore 12 fruits, each tree yielding every fruit every month. The leaves of the trees were for the healing of the nations. And there shall be no more curse, but the throne of the God and of the Lamb shall be there. And his servants, that's you and me, shall serve him. And they shall see his face, and his name shall be on their foreheads. Verse 5 says there's no night there, and they won't need a lamp, nor the light of the sun. Here's why. For the Lord God gives them light, and they shall reign, again, this is you and me, for an ever and ever. Now, let's kind of reset where we are, right? Seven years of tribulation, Jesus comes, reigns for a thousand years, set things right on the earth, rules with a rod of iron. There's a rebellion, that's crushed by God. And then John sees a new heaven and a new earth. Now, we went through this. It's new in a sense. It's remodeled. It's reconfigured. It's going to be amazing. It talks about no more sea, but we shared maybe there's no ocean there. Maybe there is. Whatever it is, it's going to be 10 times better than anything you and I have ever known. So rest easy on that one. Then there's a new Jerusalem, a city whose builder and maker is God. A city of foundations comes down Back to earth. One of the things you need to remember, and I keep harping on this, you were designed to live here. Okay, we might go to heaven for a while. If you die today, you'll go to heaven. If, you, if you're raptured, you'll be in heaven for a while. But we were meant to be here. This is home. And God's going to recreate it, and we're going to be here, and we're going to live in the new Jerusalem. And we don't know a lot about this place, right? We can speculate, there's conjecture, there's some things here. We know a lot more about what's not there from what John is writing. But verse 3 says the throne of God will be there. And verse 4 says we shall see his face. Isn't that why we got into this in the beginning? Isn't this why you came to faith in Christ? As a brand new Christian with all your zeal and, and everything going on in your spirit, I know it was this way for me, wasn't your only desire to see God? This is why, like, these other movements and some of this false teaching or let's take the prosperity gospel it is so wrong because it denies us of what we truly long for and what we truly need and what we truly desire, and that's one day to see God. Uh, this idea that God's going to give you a Cadillac, listen, you can go down the street today and buy a Cadillac, all right? You don't need a lot of money anymore. The least you want, you can get your Cadillac. The reason we got into this is because the Cadillac wasn't good enough, amen? Right? It, it would never satisfy. And some of you that are young, I'm telling you, it will never satisfy. I was at a graveside yesterday. Family in our church lost a second son to an overdose. You think a Cadillac is going to help them today? But how about seeing the face of God? That's why we got into this. That one day we would see God. That is our longing. Now, I want to be very clear on this. We see God now. We really do. We see God everywhere we look. Jesus said the Holy Spirit was like the wind. And we'll talk a lot more about this when we get into the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is like the wind. We don't know where it comes from. We don't know where it's going. 
we see the evidence. We see the, the leaves rustling, right? And it's that way with God. If, if you have spiritual eyes, which I think if you're a Christian, you do, and spiritual ears, you can see the activity of God. See it all the time. Uh, did a wedding last Friday. And I was sitting next to one of our security guys down in J-Kids. I see this guy every Sunday. And I was so glad. I said, Steve, I'm so glad I'm sitting next to you because I want to hear your story. And I said, what was your story? He said, my story, drinking and drugging since I was 15. And most of the guys in this wedding party, and I'll point out all the other guys. He goes, what's my story? Shot heroin from 25 to 30. I said, weren't you afraid you were going to die? He goes, Pastor Bob, I was upset when I woke up. And then I came here and I got in recovery and he tells me this story and made my day. That's the evidence, right? We, can, we can't see God, but we can see the evidence. When I read Unbroken, the story of Louis Zamperini, a guy on a raft for 53 days in World War II, prisoner of war, five years, comes back, becomes an alcoholic, gets saved at a Billy Graham crusade, lives to 97 years old, preaching the gospel everywhere he goes. Evidence. Jesus said in Matthew 25, if you feed someone, if you clothe someone, you're doing it unto him. Victor Hugo said to look into the eyes of a human being is to see the face of God. And then there's the gifts of the Spirit, right? The activity of the Spirit through us. And we can see God. If you're looking for God, you'll find him. Here's the problem. We see him through a glass dimly. It's veiled, right? Even the disciples, when they saw Jesus, he was veiled in humanity. And the gifts of the Spirit, it's like the old saying, uh, it's like drinking out of a hose, right? You taste a lot of hose. So when you see the gifts of the Spirit, you see a lot of the activity of people because God's chosen to use people. But the Bible says in this day, you will see God. This is the cry of the ages. And the man who really had this heart wasn't David, by the way. It was Moses. Moses, at the end of his life, made a request of God in Exodus 33, 18. He said, God, let me behold your glory. I want to see your presence. And God said to him, Moses, no man can look at me and live. Now, I want to say this about Moses. Moses wasn't chasing experiences like some people today. The guy was very content to be a shepherd, 40 years. He's in Midian, and he sees a bush burning, but it's not consumed. He didn't ask for that experience, but he comes aside, and God speaks to him. And he sees more miracles than any human being that's ever lived. Moses and the children of Israel. Ten plagues come against the Egyptians, the Red Sea parts. Uh, manna comes down for 40 years. I mean, gosh, no one's seen the activity of the Spirit more than Moses. And maybe he needed it, right? Three million people grumbling, complaining every day, shoulders. You know, this guy needed to see something, right? But after all that activity, he builds this tent of meeting. And this cloud comes down and said, the Lord spoke to Moses face to face as a man speaks to another. Now, my wife hates when I get into this. So if you don't believe this, just stop up your ears. I don't think God has a face. Okay, I think it's written that way so we understand from a human perspective. It's an idiom to me. What it's saying is there was communion between Moses and God that was direct. It wasn't a dream. It wasn't a revelation. 
It wasn't like you and me when we hear God, you know, was that me, was it my mind, was it bad pizza, you know. This was face to face. It was direct. And one of the things you find from Genesis to Revelation is we serve a God who speaks. Uh, there's about five things I'll die on a hill for, I'll die on that hill. Hebrews says God spoke to the fathers by the prophets in the Old Testament and these last days speaks through his son. We serve a God who speaks. And it's logical, if God created a world, if he loves human beings, he would certainly long to commune with them. One of the great oppositions we have and one of the fiery darts of the enemy is that God cares about others, he doesn't really care about you and your life. But we serve a God who speaks. All through the Bible, God speaks. And there's an art to hearing God. Dallas Willard has written the best book I've ever read called Hearing God. Others have written. It's an acquired thing. Remember Samuel, when he would run into Eli, and he said, I'm hearing these voices. He said, oh, that's the voice of God, and you need to listen. And he runs back to Eli three times. And, and you and I, in our Christian experience, we figured this out, right? We can discern God's voice. Now, here's a beautiful thing. We had this revelation. God speaks through the Bible. That's why we read the Bible daily. That's why Jesus said, man doesn't live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. That doesn't mean we're sitting around waiting for a new word from God. We have this, and we have direct communication, and we can hear God. But Moses was a little different. At the end of his life, chapter 34, it said, never again... Did there arise a prophet like unto Moses, who the Lord spoke to face to face? That's a staggering verse. I mean, you're talking about David and Solomon and all the prophets who said, thus saith the Lord. No one ever had this type of experience until Jesus. Jesus fulfilled the prophecy that a prophet like Moses would arise, someone who, and he was God, but commune with the Father face to face. But listen to Moses' request. I want to see you, Lord. Here's what the Lord said. I will also do this thing you have spoken, for you have found grace in my sight, and I know you by name. And he said, please, Lord, let me see your glory. And he said, I will make, watch this, my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim the name of the Lord before you. Now I'm going to take a little leap here. This is what I believe. The Bible says in this new world, you're going to see God. Jesus in the Beatitudes, blessed are the pure in heart, they will see God. That's the, the longing of our faith. Whatever we're going to see, do you hear what God said to Moses? You will see my goodness. That answers a thousand questions for me. Because the, the great battle today is God's not good. By the way, I love when things come together. We sang that song today, God, you're so good. That wasn't planned. So if you don't think we move in the spirit, that was led by the spirit. The number one cry today is God's not good. Why do people die? Why do people get sick? Why, why do bad things happen to good people? In that day, when you look into the face of God, whatever it is, a face or not, you will intrinsically know that God is good, righteous, fair, just. It answers a thousand questions like, uh, when we get to heaven, will we remember bad things on earth? And then some people answer, oh, well, no, God's going to kind of delete that out of your mind. No, he's not. 
You're just going to look at ultimate goodness. And it's all going to make sense. He's going to be the air we breathe. There'll be no more ups and downs and highs and lows and seasons of doubt and faith. The beautiful thing about this day is the goodness of God will be in our very being. And whatever this new Jerusalem is, it will be fantastic. Now, one last thing about this new Jerusalem. Look at verse 5. There's no night there. So if you love nighttime, eh, some things are going to go away. And they don't need a lamp nor the light of the sun. Now, it doesn't say there's not a sun. It doesn't say there's not a moon. Now, maybe God will give us a whole new universe and we'll learn new planets and all that. It doesn't say they're not there. It says we don't need them. Which, by the way, ends the old argument where people come along and they try and outsmart God and they say, um, you know, there's something wrong with Genesis because God says let there be light on day one and we don't get a sun, moon until, you know, the fourth day. Uh, so everything's out of whack. Like, you can't grow vegetation. Listen, trying to outsmart God is a very difficult task, okay? Uh, for anybody that ever thought God needed the sun to grow vegetation, you got to be kidding me. He created the world from nothing. He doesn't need the sun. The last time I read my Bible, we were given the sun and the moon and the stars for times and seasons. And I know, I know it gives us heat and all that and tides, Listen, it was for us. A couple weeks ago, I shared for you, our moon, 63 million of our moons fit into a hollowed out sun, which makes no sense. Because in an eclipse, they're the same size. And the perspective's all out of whack. You know, as close as the moon is to us, and as far as the sun is away, it should not be that way. Science will, agrees with me, believe me. So it's almost like all this was done to be observable for you and me. And science will tell us we are the most observable, we're in the most observable place in the universe. Hey, what a coincidence. So we don't need a sun or a moon. Why? God's everything. God's everything there. Um, remember when you were a new Christian, did a lot of dumb things, a lot of zeal, gullible, right? So, uh, my brother's going to this church, and he's calling me every night. They're having a revival. And I'm like, oh, well, like, what's going on? He goes, oh, we got this guy who died, and he was in heaven for seven days and seven nights. It's packed. And so I go there, and it's packed. You can barely get in. You had to get there an hour early, selling tapes, big offerings, all these wonderful stories. Six months later, we found Calvary. And we're going through the word of God for the first time, and it's soothing, and we're learning so much. And one day we go up to the pastor and say, you know, we saw this guy who died, and he was in heaven seven days and seven nights. And we're telling the pastor all these stories. And the pastor said, well, I don't know what heaven he went to. But the Bible says there's no night in heaven, so I don't know how he was there seven days and seven nights. Me and my brother looked at each other like, ah, we were snookered. Yeah, it's like, yeah, everybody's been through that, right? And the amazing thing is when you know God's word, you don't need somebody that went to heaven and came back. Jesus came down from heaven. And he went back, and I'll listen to what he has to say, and it's enough. Now, verse 6, then the angel said to John, these words are faithful and true, and the Lord God of the holy prophets sent his angel to show his servants things which must shortly take place. 
Now, we already looked at that verse, right? These words are faithful and true. You know, what John's saying is, I didn't make this up. This isn't a dream. I wasn't handed two tablets or, you know, some extra book. John is the secretary. He was told to write the things that were, the thing thou hast seen, the things that shall be. So John is just writing down, and I love here, the God of the holy prophets. In other words, this is continuous. The 39 books what we call the Old Testament and the New Testament are one grand story revealed by God. Notice the link there. The other thing the angel's telling John is, you can take this to the bank. Because through the prophets, God has spoken. Jesus said the prophets began with righteous Abel. God told Adam in the day you sin, you will surely die. That happened. God told Noah he destroyed the world in the flood. That happened. Daniel laid out world-dominating empires from Babylon through Rome. That happened. Isaiah said a virgin would conceive. Micah said uh, Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. Isaiah told us how he would die. Zechariah told us he'd be betrayed. God means what he says, says what he means. All that came true. What this angel is saying, if all those things came true, there's one thing left to come true. Jesus Christ coming again. And notice what it says. These words are faithful and true. It's linked to the holy prophets. And he said they will shortly take place. And then here's something we haven't seen since early part of the book of Revelation. Words in red. I don't know if they're in red on your phone. I don't use a phone to read the Bible, but if if you have a Bible, uh, they're in red. This is Jesus. Behold, I'm coming quickly, and here's a blessing. Blessed is he who keeps the words of this book. Now, jump down to verse 10. The angel says, don't seal the book. Why? The time is at hand. Verse 12, Jesus said, I'm coming quickly. My reward's with me. Verse 16, I have sent my angel um, to testify of you of these things, the bright and the morning star. Look at verse 17. The spirit and the bride say, come, and let him hear say, come. And verse 20, the last words of Jesus in the Bible, surely I'm coming quickly. I'm going to teach you a word this morning. All those phrases where it says, I'm coming quickly or come Jesus, is a word, maranatha. You may have heard of it before. Uh, It's in 1 Corinthians, a few other places. It was used by the early church, which is very strange because it's Aramaic. And the writers of the New Testament wrote in Greek, and they were writing to Greek churches predominantly, but they carried this old Aramaic word into the churches. Why? Because, again, it was the cry and the hope of believers. It was kind of like a buzzword, a byword. I'll give you an example. So did you ever wonder when you travel the world that you see police cars go by? Maybe I'm the only one who's ever wondered this. Like a cop car goes by in Egypt and it says police. And a cop car goes by in Nairobi, Africa, and says police. And I'm like, did somebody make a universal decision that wherever we go it would be called police? And then I found out the French actually coined that word. They called their law enforcement police. The British had no counterpart, so they called it police. Both those countries colonized the rest of the world, and everybody called it police, okay? They just drug a French word into all their languages. That's what this word Maranatha is. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Uh, 
believe it or not, Calvary Chapel in the beginning, a lot of them were called Maranatha chapels. Uh, you may not know this. Calvary Chapel is where contemporary Christian worship, what we sang today, now it's evolved, right, with Hillsong and Bethel and all that. Contemporary music started in Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa. Hippies would come in the morning where they sang hymns. They would write these folk songs, like, remember back in the day, America and Crosby, Stills, and Nash, like they were listening to all that. And they wrote what we now know are contemporary songs. So when people come here and say, oh, I know what you're doing here. The secret sauce is your music. No, 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 no. The, that came out of this, right? But guess what that label was that eventually sold that music? Maranatha Music. There were bands, movies. Uh, I went down memory lane on Google. The, uh, Maranatha used by so many things today. It was the early cry and hope of the church. Why? Because they believed Jesus could come at any time and wanted him to come. For most of the history of the world, people lived in squalor. The early church was persecuted. Remember the churches? There was a persecuted church. Jesus didn't come to that persecuted church and say, you know, if you put these principles in effect, you'll fulfill your destiny. That's an American gospel, and it only works here and in the West. He said, hold on to what you have. Nothing's going to change. For 400 years, God looked at the slavery of Egypt. It never changed until the day of their deliverance. The cry of all believers of every age was come quickly, Lord Jesus, until our day, where we got it pretty good. I just read a Wall Street Journal article about displaced people from Myanmar, millions living in squalor. It's not going to change. The early church, and when I say the early church, I'm not talking church fathers, I'm talking about in the Bible. The Apostle Paul went to Thessalonica. He was only there six weeks. He writes back to the church a year later, and he says, they themselves declare concerning what manner of entry we had to you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the true and living God, and watch this, and to wait for his son from heaven. See the balance there? We got churches over here who are all whacked out about the end times. Right? 666 under every bush. Then we come over here and we got the social gospel. We're just going to change the world. We're going to get rid of abortion. The early church was praying, Lord, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. They had turned from idols to the living God and they were serving God with one eye on the sky waiting for his son from heaven. Later in the same letter, the Lord himself will descend from heaven to shout, the voice of an archangel, this is the rapture, the trumpet of God. Notice this, the dead in Christ will rise first, then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds. Last time I looked, Paul wrote that. And I wasn't an English major, and it wasn't my best subject, you can tell by my grammar, and I'm an editor for my writing, but... Paul saying, we who are alive and remain, was putting himself in that category. He thought he could be in that company. He wrote this to the Philippians, for our citizenship is in heaven, from whom we also, get this, eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. 
The blessing that God revealed to me personally this time around was that we've got everything reversed, right? So we live in a day and age now where the constant bombardment on TV and it's really, it's really permeating our society is, you know, we're going to live a long time now, right? So when you go to a financial planner, I think I shared with you, I went to my financial planner, he brings up a screen and tells me I'm going to live to be 91. And I'm like, yeah, but here's the problem. When's the last time you saw a 6, 7, 91-year-old? I don't think so. Now, the reason they can put that up there is that's not the expectancy of life. That's if nothing goes wrong, you'll live to 91, right? Of course, it works out for them because they have to convince you that you need all this money to make it to 91 to live the way you're living now, all right? It's a $327 trillion industry of us having enough money to make it to 91. But no one's telling us how to make it to the day after we die. No one. That's the reality. And when we look at this, the blessing that comes back to me is, as Christians, we've got this all reversed. We're not trying to figure out how to stay here as long as we can. And believe it, I love earth as much as you do. But I'm trying to get to a place, and I'm not there, where I can be like Paul, where I say, for me to live is Christ, but to die is gain. Paul had the right perspective. He said, I press on, knowing the time of my departure is at hand. Read Hebrews. Look at the, the great men of faith. They're, they're, yes, we were meant to be here. Yes, we were to have a purpose. But there's, there's something reversed in us. And, and I understand that, you know, Israel's a bucket list. There's bucket list items. We have. I, I get all that. But the blessing this time around is, yeah, it might be good for me. It's not good for the million people in that Myanmar IDP camp. And it might be good for me, but it wasn't good for people at the funeral yesterday. By the way, that's why Jesus wept. He wept that we would ever stand at gravesides or be in IDP camps. So the cry is, Maranatha, Lord, deliver us from what this is. And it's not escapist, because Christianity's changed the world for the better more than anything that's ever, this planet's ever seen. But it's really, Lord Jesus, come quickly. So how do I want to live? I want to get up in the morning, and I want to pray, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come through me. Lord, in some way, may my kingdom come through you. But then my prayer is, Lord, may the ultimate kingdom, Maranatha, come, where you'll wipe away every tear from every eye. We're almost done. Anyone with a brain should have a logical question right now. Jesus said he was coming quickly. The time is short. The time is near. Uh, it's been 2,000 years. <laughs> How do we trust this? What's going on here? Well, Peter cleaned a lot of this up, right? Peter said in the last day, scoffers, skeptics would come and say, where's the promise of his kingdom? The Bible already foresaw this. Where's the promise of his coming? Since the fathers fell asleep, everything continues. Like, there's, there's no God. There's, Jesus isn't coming again. It's a made-up story. John, John made this up. It's been 2,000 years. No, Peter said, don't count slackness as others do. The Lord's not slack. God doesn't want anyone to perish. God's lengthened this time so none would perish. 
And then there's the idea that a day is a thousand years, a thousand years, and one day. Again, if you're trying to outsmart God, it won't work. Okay? The word means prompt. The word means he's coming at the right time. If you get into the Greek, and by the way, I know a little Hebrew and a little Greek. They both make excellent pizza. That's about all I know. Okay? But I did a little digging with concordances and Weist and some of these Greek guys. It, it means prompt. It means, listen, somewhere on God's day planner is the day. Jesus said, we don't know the hour. Nobody knows. It's on there, and it will come to pass. Galatians says, in the fullness of time, again, at the right time, it was on God's day planner, he sent his son, Christmas, right? When Jesus came, there were no, no wars. Uh, the world spoke Greek. If you look back, it was the right time to come. Same thing here. In other words, when these things start, they will quickly come to pass. And we've been through all that. When is the starting point? Et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I got to close on this one thing because I know a lot of us have this background. John's so blown away in verse 8 when he heard these things, that he fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed him these things. The angel said, see that you do not do that, for I am of your fellow servant and of your brethren, the prophets, and those who keep the words of this book. How's this for advice? Worship God. Man is an incurable worshiper. How do I know? Go to a Phillies game. On the back of everybody's shirt, there will be a name. Harper. Why in the world would you spend $100 to wear a shirt with someone else's last name on it? It makes no logical sense. Because you're a worshiper. There was capacity within you to extend and align to something bigger than you. And advertisers know this, and they're making a fortune. Richard Dawkins knows this. The most literate atheist of our time said when you stand at the Grand Canyon, this is, I believe, uh, oh gosh, the blind watchmaker. I forget the chapter. He said if you stand at the Grand Canyon and observe it, he said you're almost prone to worship. This is from Richard Dawkins. Until you realize it's all by chance. There's capacity. This is why other religions worship cows and the moon and the sun, etc. There's something in us to align to something bigger than ourselves. Now, this isn't a bad thing, right? You know, we're to worship God. But let's face it, there are people in our lives who we attach to. Like, I got to believe if I lived in Moses' time, I wanted to get around Moses. Right, this guy talks face to face with God and he's led me through the wilderness and there's manna and he talked to a bush and I think I'd like to get around the guy. Now, I love what E.V. Hill said. E.V. Hill to me is one of the great preachers of all time. And uh, he said, women would come to him and say, oh, Mr. Hill, I want to touch that hand. He goes, hurry up and touch it. He said, because these tracks are going into a graveyard. And what he was saying is, I'm only flesh. And God's given me a calling that's different than your calling. Listen, we can respect people, right? We can applaud when God uses people. Um, 
We should respect leaders and people that are doing great things, um, but in no way idolize them. Put them on a pedestal. Has to go the other way around, too. Um, leaders who always want to be served, something's wrong. One of the great things that ever happened to me when I found Calvary Chapel, I went to my first pastor's conference, and Chuck Smith, who's, <coughs> excuse me, the founder of Calvary and leading a movement, I hear his voice, and I'm in a line from here to that wall to the chow hall. And I hear a voice behind me, and I know that voice, and I turn around, and he got in line at the end of the line. He didn't go to the front of the line. He wasn't eating steak in the back room, right? I am of your fellow servants, the prophets. We all have the same value. We all have different functions. The worship of human beings, someone like Mary or saints, is nowhere in the Bible. In fact, if anything, it's talked against. But that's what we're prone to do. And in the Protestant world, we elevate people, and that's wrong too. I keep saying one final word. Verse 10, do not seal the words of this prophecy. Why? The time is at hand. Thank God it's been unsealed. Daniel was told to seal. Daniel was told in the last days men will run to and fro and knowledge will increase. Knowledge of the scriptures, general knowledge. And then finally it tells us, he who is unjust, verse 11, let him be unjust still. He who is filthy, let him be filthy still. He who is righteous, let him be righteous still. He who is holy, let him be holy still. What does that mean? It means there were times Jesus went in the villages and people wouldn't repent and he walked out of those villages. There's nothing you can do to lead a person to faith. You can tell them about Christ, you can be a witness, but at the end of the day, it's a supernatural conversion. So I think that's what the angel's saying here. Verse 14 is the final blessing. Blessed are those who do as the commandments. They may have the right to enter the tree of life and the city. Outside are dogs and sorcerers, sexually immoral, idolaters, and those who practice a lie. And then here's the final thing, verse 18. For I testify to everyone who hears the words of this prophecy, that's you. If anyone adds to these, God will add to him the plagues that are written in this book. If anyone takes away, God shall take away his part from the tree of life from the holy city, and Jesus said, behold, I'm coming quickly. Revelation ends the Bible. Uh, we don't need a Book of Mormon. We don't need the Koran 700 years later, Book of Mormon 1,700 years later. We don't need a guy who writes a book and says, oh, by the way, here's something new. This closed the deal. Genesis to Revelation God's word. And what God says, he means. And he's coming quickly, not to crush us, but to talk to us face to face. That's the God you serve. That's the blessing of the book.